This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its six-year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, July 25th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the biggest movie weekend in years and also touch on a bunch of other film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writer and box office analyst Ryan Scott. Hey, hey everyone. How's it going? Ryan, is that a fair characterization, the biggest movie weekend in years? Uh, easily, uh, w- uh, without exaggeration. Okay, so Barbie and Oppenheimer both uh, debuted, and we talked about both of those movies on last week's show. We did a big spoiler episode uh, on Friday, so go back and listen to that if you've seen these movies and and want to know, you know, sort of our, our takes on them, I guess. Uh, but let's get into the box office performance because, as we've mentioned, it's it's been kind of astounding. Yeah. So, um, in short. Uh, you know, this was the biggest box office weekend since Avengers Endgame in 2019. Um, uh, and, and some history was made here, uh, in in a lot of ways. Um, so Barbie became so much bigger than anyone like could have possibly imagined. Like the box office tracking for this, I think two weeks ago was 80 million. And that, that would have been, let's be very clear. 80 million would have been awesome. Like it would have been like, oh my god, the Barbie, the very weird Barbie movie opened to eighty million dollars. That's mm-hmm. great. It opened to hundred and sixty-two million dollars, and on Sunday, by the way, the estimates were one hundred fifty-five. So it just kept going up. So, um, you know, that's domestic, uh, and so uh, I think they already counted the Monday numbers here on the numbers, but 
We're looking at uh, global total right now at $382.3 million already for Barbie, which is incredible. Wow. Um, so, like, I was sort of thinking that movie might do $400 million in total. <laughs> you know, there was a part of me, which, again, wouldn't have been bad. Like, it would have been, all right, you know, that's that's whatever. But, like, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that, you know, it's the, the by, definitely, like, unquestionably the biggest opening weekend ever for uh, a movie directed by a woman. Congratulations to Greta Gerwig. Uh, mm -hmm. It looked like uh, Captain Marvel was going to kind of hold that because Captain Marvel was co-directed by uh, Anna Bowden, but uh, Greta Gerwig now stands alone. Uh, however, as as you mentioned, uh, this was a huge weekend. People have been looking at this on, this on the calendar all year because Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer also opened this weekend. Now we're talking about another a three-hour R-rated biopic that comes with a $100 million budget. That sounds like a tough sell anyway, let alone with competition that high. But... Uh, I have learned to never doubt Christopher Nolan. Uh, uh, the movie opened to $82.4 million domestically, which again, I would argue even without the competition, that's a better than best case scenario. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 yeah, I mean, that's, and again, if we're, I think they counted the Monday numbers here already too, but oh no, not quite yet for that one. But yeah, so $180.1 million global opening for Oppenheimer. Um, you know, and both, both of these movies worth mentioning, both the critic score and audience rating are in the 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, and they both have a cinema scores. So we're looking at legs for weeks here, probably. Um, uh, I just saw this morning uh, that Oppenheimer has been given permission to be released in China next month. So I know China box office has not been super reliable for uh, Hollywood films, but, you know, that is something to, to take into account there. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the biggest, by far the biggest, uh, uh, weekend, you know, at least since, since, um, Spider-Man No Way Home, which is, uh, no small thing. Um, yeah, I mean, just absolutely huge, huge, huge on both counts. And then, you know, you had a lot of other movies actually held well, uh, Sound of Freedom, that faith-based movie we've been talking about only dropped 27%. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, even though it hasn't been doing you know, super great only dropped forty six percent. Insidious: The Red Door only dropped forty nine percent. Elemental: The Feel Good Box Office Story of the Year only dropped thirty seven percent. So yeah, I mean, a lot of these movies held well even in the face of competition. Is big, huge, great weekend. So I, I mean, I think it's kind of a fool's errand to try to pinpoint exactly why these movies performed well because there's so many factors that uh, you can you know, that's, that's world into this occasion, like the whole Barbenheimer phenomenon. And like, I got an email that said something like 200,000 people did the double feature and, and, you know, I, it's, it's taken on a life of its own. And I'm not sure, you know, we, we can talk about how Barbie served a historically underserved audience and time after time, that kind of thing has worked for Hollywood and everybody feels surprised every time when it, when it works so well. Um, which like maybe, hey, make more movies directly for women. Like what what are you doing, Hollywood? Uh, so, you know, th that's a thing we could talk about. But there again, there are just like so many factors that it's almost it almost seems like counterproductive to try to pinpoint exactly why that happened. So in, in lieu of doing that, I wanted to ask you one question about Oppenheimer before we sort of, I guess, move on to our takeaways from all of this. And I'm, I'm wondering how Oppenheimer performed against some of Nolan's other non-Batman opening weekends I, I don't know i'm putting you on the spot here i don't know if you have no that, you're that not information. because i do my research damn it <laughs> um no i actually just touched on this it's actually christopher nolan's biggest opening weekend that for a movie that doesn't have batman in it um, uh, i just mean like the what the what the the difference is the the actual 
uh, difference in those numbers. The, oh, you want to okay, yeah, that yeah. gap? Like, oh, uh, yeah. Let me pull up that chart real quick because I was actually just using that. Uh, also, for anyone that is uh, that likes this stuff and wants to do any research, uh, Box Office Mojo gets a lot of uh, credit, but I, I would recommend uh, thenumbers.com has a lot of very interesting charts and well-organized charts and you can kind of customize them and stuff. So if you ever want to do some like kind of, if you're ever curious about any box office stuff, uh, check out the numbers.com. But uh, as far as, um, so uh, again, remind me, Ben, what is your, spe- you want specific numbers here? Yeah, I just want to know what the gap is between like the the Batman things kind of feel like they sit in their own. Um, they, they do, they do yeah. like, because it's Batman, right? And, and right. so, so like his biggest opening weekend is the Dark Knight Rises, which was 160.8 million, followed very closely by the Dark Knight, which was 158.4. But then you have Oppenheimer at 82.4. Uh, it's actually a, a steeper drop than I would have thought, actually, uh, after that, which is Inception at 62.7. Oh, but wow. Incep- but Inception was very leggy. Like, I think the thing with that movie is that initially, I think, like, the trailers were very good for that movie, but I still think people didn't really know what the hell it was. And then I think word of mouth was so good on it. And then Dunkirk is behind that at 50.5 million, which for a, for a dark world war two movie is pretty damn good. And again, that movie legged out and got to 512 million worldwide. Um, you know, then you have Batman begins at 48.7 followed very closely by interstellar at 47.5. Um, you know, but yeah, so the thing with Nolan movies is they tend to leg out because word of mouth tends to be so good. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it tended is really the only, well, even Tenet had remarkable legs, you know, because of COVID, because like it was the only game in town. So, right. you know, I, I just talked about this, but like the, I think honestly, in hindsight, like Tenet doing 360 million under the circumstances it was released in is kind of particularly what we've seen with some of these movies post COVID. It's, it's even that is kind of impressive. I don't know, like that, yeah. that takes on new light every day for me where I look at movies like you know, Transformers Rise of the Beast isn't even going to make as much as Bumblebee, <laughs> you know, like, and I'm just like, but, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, man, I, the tenant numbers, I mean, I know it had a huge budget, which makes it complicated, but I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, Oppenheimer. And I also think too, the one thing I talked about, like you look at, okay, Dunkirk, a World War II movie from the guy that made the Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. I think it's insane to me that a three-hour R-rated biopic that is mostly people talking and doing science made that much more opening weekend than Dunkirk. That, yeah. to me, is, like, the most impressive thing. And I liked Oppenheimer. I'm not talking, but I'm saying that's what the movie really is. If you want to get down to it, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, that that's really why I wanted to know what that gap was, because it's so impressive, because this is... You know, we're talking about for for Nolan's other movies, I guess, uh, Tenet aside, we're talking about a pre-pandemic period. And like even going back to the idea that this movie, this three hour biopic that stars Killian Murphy and like has, you know, a great supporting cast like all Nolan movies do, but is not necessarily like an action thriller or whatever, like the, the kind of stuff that he tended to make, I guess, like in between uh, Batman movies or whatever. Yeah. The fact that this movie now, I guess, you know, even still in this sort of like, um, I don't know if you want to call it post pandemic or like late stage pandemic or whatever era that we're in opened higher than a DiCaprio movie where DiCaprio was like arguably near the, the peak of his powers. And like that film had this sort of spy element and like, you know, you can put a guy with a gun on the poster and like that whole yeah. kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah, because you could make an argument that Inception was the argument that like once Inception did what it did, that was the argument that that was DiCaprio's peak. 
that like that movie maybe made what it made partially because you had DiCaprio in it. Like, yeah, you can, you can yeah. make that argument. But yeah, no, I'm with you. Like I, I, it's it's you know, and again, like I, I liked Oppenheimer, but I think like what I've been telling people because people have been asking me what I thought about it, and I'm like, okay, like it's not. I put Oppenheimer middle of the pack for Christopher Nolan. But when you're saying Oppenheimer is not as good as the Dark Knight or Dunkirk, you're saying this movie is not as good as two phenomenal movies. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it speaks more volume. But I also think that because the thing I just wrote for us, which hasn't went up yet, is that Christopher Nolan is one of the few director names that like your mom knows, right? Like people know like, oh, I know who that is. Mm -hmm. And and like that name, like Quentin Tarantino, it gets people in the door. But the thing that Christopher Nolan does so uniquely, like whereas Tarantino, his movies, they kind of have a ceiling. It's a, it's a good ceiling, but it's a ceiling. Nolan is making like original movies that have like an incredibly high ceiling. And and it's, you know, it, it's remarkable that he's that he's built up this cachet with audiences and and he's done it so consistently. Like every two or three years is releasing one of these gigantic blockbuster movies, the vast majority of which at this point have been through original ideas. Mm-hmm. It's pretty impressive. So I, I wanted to just sort of bounce back and forth between us for a minute, uh, Ryan, and just like talk about some takeaways from the, the I guess, historic o- opening weekend that we just experienced here. And for me, like first things first, you just absolutely love to see two great movies performing well. Like it's good for my soul when that happens and it's good for the business. So I just love, you know, a lot of times movies that we don't like perform well and it's kind of like, well, that's good for the business, but we're in a creative rut here or whatever, but like both the fact that both of these movies are legitimately great movies and also doing well is just like, it seems like a rare convergence that I'm just uh, personally very thrilled to see. So that, that was like my big takeaway. That's one of mine too. And I also, because like, I was like right now we're seeing sound of freedom at 124 million domestic, like, Theaters need that money. I'm not thrilled. That's the movie doing right. It. You yes, know, like exactly. I'm not like it, it, like it, it. You know, like so. I, I have very mixed feelings about that. That's a because that, like right now we're looking at a premium example of exactly what you're talking about. But like, I'm with you. But the other thing is too is that like so I think particularly post COVID is that like people have been looking at like 52 weekends a year. You got 52 big movies that can open because you can't really have more than one big movie on an op- on a weekend. But it all comes down to counter programming. And like these movies, okay, like you cannot replicate the Barbenheimer thing. Every single studio right now is having conversations about how do we replicate this? You can't. Mm -hmm. So like, but at at their core, these were perfectly counter-programmed movies that, yes, you had a lot of people doing the double features, but you really had a lot of people, you know, just going to see the movie they wanted to see. And, and, and I think the thing is a lot of people will probably see both, maybe not on the same weekend, but yeah, it's, it's a lesson that like, if you do this exactly right, people, it, 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 people will go see the movie they want to see if they want to see it. I don't necessarily think it, it matters that much if there's another movie in theaters as well, that is also big mm-hmm. if, if they're not cannibalizing as much of the same audience. So that's what I like to see. And that's the lesson I'm just like, okay, make movies people want to see, if there's another movie out, maybe, you know, you don't necessarily have to move away from that or give it a ton of space. You know, it's yeah. I was like last year, I remember I was upset because like the Batman ended up being like the only big movie in theaters for like five weeks. And I was like, guys, you got to just stop being scared. <laughs> you know, you got to you got to <laughs> like, you know, because so I'm happy we're sort of getting away from that is very similar to your takeaway. But like from, as you said, good for the business. That's what I want to see for sure. And I'm very yeah. happy about that. So we're, we're talking a lot about how impressive the Oppenheimer thing is with, you know, from Nolan. And it certainly is um, just because of like the, the subject matter there. Barbie, I think 
um, I talked a little bit with BJ when I was talking about this last last week of turn in terms of like grading it on a curve because it's like based on IP and everybody knows it and whatever. But I still think what Greta Gerwig did this is one of my other big takeaways. I just love to see Greta Gerwig leveling up in a big way here, like setting aside all of the the box office records on a pure filmmaking level. This is the most ambitious thing that she's ever attempted by a long shot, and she just absolutely crushed it. So I, I just love to see uh, a great director take those you know, incremental steps up. Um, it, yeah. I was wondering if you had any other, uh, any other like big takeaways from this before we talk about like what Hollywood might take away. Yeah. It occurs to me that like, it almost sucks real bad that like her next two movies are for Netflix. Um, Cause like, you know, I mean, audiences now would be all over whatever she did next, let alone yeah. if they make a sequel, right? Like, like, is she going to, because she's not locked in on those Narnia movies. So, like, I don't, you know, uh, I just wish those were made being made by, like, a studio. Like, I really wish, like, Warner Brothers was making those Narnia movies or something, because, like, it sucks that she now she now goes to Netflix where those movies just sit on a home. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I but, uh, but, yeah, I think, like, I, I, I know you guys probably talked a lot. I just think it's, it cannot be overstated how amazing it is that this movie, not just a Barbie movie, this Barbie movie, I'm not spoiling any people that haven't seen it, but like it is an exceptionally weird movie. And I mm-hmm. believe it is probably the weirdest big budget adaptation of a piece of IP of all time. It is exceptionally weird. And I think it's incredible <laughs> that this movie made that much money. Like it's, it, it blows my mind that this version of it got made at that level. And I think it's incredible that people are turning up for it because it because I think the thing is in an era when we still can't get away from IP and adaptations and stuff. Okay, at least make them interesting, and you know, under the right circumstances, audiences will turn up. That's what I'm happy to see. So one sentiment that I've seen going around a little bit is that this weekend is proof that audiences are hungry to see more non-franchise movies, and that was certainly true under these very specific conditions, Ryan. But I'm wondering if you think the failure of the Flash and the underperformance uh, underperformance of some of the other big, uh, I guess, would-be blockbusters this summer means that that's actually true on a wider level. Like, do you think that audiences really are actively, tr- you know, wanting to seek out non-franchise things? No, okay. I, I think that I think that like like I because I I'm writing a thing for us about this right now. I think the thing is that it, it's people you need to give people more than just that. I think this summer was so much of just that, and I think the thing is like you can't have ip for the sake of ip's sake that flash movie like a solo a truly solo flash movie would have made sense in 2018 Mm -hmm. you know like the problem is you essentially made a sequel to a movie that was six or seven years old that people didn't really like then you know and then you made it like some big thing setting up other stuff that people don't care like Aquaman, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania suffered from a similar thing where it's setting up a bunch of stuff people didn't know about or maybe don't care about. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, a successful movie, was uh, just kept it to the team people liked and it was more about closure and allowing some closure instead of just setting up more stuff. But, you know, but uh, to, sorry to interrupt, but like the two things I'm thinking of specifically are another another couple articles that you wrote that I'll link in the show notes are like uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which like I think you you called the biggest casualty of Barmenheimer just I because did. the the um you know the, all the oxygen in the room was sucked up by that, and then right. also like Indiana Jones Five, which you wrote that it could be Disney's biggest box office disaster since John Carter, which is just like kind of blowing my mind to think about right. because. 
John Carter is like this legendary failure. And Indiana Jones 5, to me, like Dial of Destiny was actually a pretty successful movie and I really enjoyed it. And just thinking about it right next to a, a historic disaster like John Carter is kind of breaking my brain a little bit. Yeah, so, it's just over, it's pure overspending in those situations, right? Yeah. Like, like, so I think it just comes down to like, it, you could have made an Indiana Jones 5 at even like 100, I, I would argue maybe even $150 million you could have made it look like, which is not an unreasonable amount of money for that sort of movie. Mm-hmm. And Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, I have a little sympathy for that because that was literally the movie that pushed through the COVID wall. Yeah. Where they, you know, they, but, and also that movie, and now what I argued here, it dropped significantly at the domestic box office, but it's still doing very well overseas. I think the thing is that movie's probably going to end up around $700 million worldwide, which, look, that's $700 million worth of people going to see that movie. So there is a gigantic audience for it. Same thing with Fast X. You just can't overspend. That's what I've harped on more. But the fact of the matter is that, like, if you want to go down the list of things that made money this year, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, uh, you know, John Wick Chapter 4, Creed 3, these are Scream 6, Insidious the Red Door. These are all franchise movies that are making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like you can't say that, you know, I and like Super Mario Brothers movie based on IP, you bet there's going to be sequels and spinoffs there. So, like, it's just more about giving audiences something other than and making sure that you're making those franchise movies like in a way that makes sense. You can't just do it for the sake of doing it anymore. But, you know, because like that's where stuff like Dungeons and Dragons, a movie I actually really liked, kind of failed, you know, like and that, that's unfortunate. But, you know, it, 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 it I just think that if you look at what's still making money. You can't say that franchises are, you know, people don't want to see them anymore. They do. They just want to see them under certain circumstances. Yeah. I I guess that's a good way to transition into the next topic here, which is like, if we had to guess about what some of the takeaways the studios will will have from this past weekend's box office success, what do you think they might be thinking right now? Again, everyone is trying their every, I don't know. I've never been in like one of those executive boardrooms, but. I got to imagine there's a bunch of people that like know how this stuff works a little bit, like marketing people and stuff that are sitting there listening to like a suit yell about what's the next Barbenheimer? How do we make Barbenheimer happen? And everyone's like, you can't just like replicate a thing that the internet ran with. Like, you know, that benefited both of those movies so much and it was organic. You can't fake that organic thing. My, my lesson is that there's no substitute for quality. I hope that's this, the, this, the, the sort of lesson here from the studios, but I don't know how true that is. But uh, I, I, I fear that the, the takeaway is going to be they're trying to, you know, manufacture matchups. Yeah, that's one. I think more toy movies feels inevitable. Like, obviously, there was that big New Yorker piece talking about how Mattel was, you know, is basically saying like, hey, filmmakers come, you know, adapt our material. Like, I'm sure a Hot Wheels movie is coming and, you know, et cetera, I mean, et cetera, that's, et that's been Hot Wheels has been in development for years. J.J. Abrams right. has been working on that for a long. But yeah, I think some of those get expediated now, right? Like there's that magic eight ball movie that's supposed to be like a horror movie that they're going to make. And, mm-hmm. you know, Mattel specifically is probably about to like, I just saw this morning Mattel re up their toy licensing deal with Warner brothers. Oh, they are about to get in bed together in a big, bad way. Yeah. Um, so like, which again, fine. You know, like if you make more movies, like, like if you make a, a, a magic eight ball movie, that's like a funny horror movie. Like I, okay. If you can continue to adapt that weird IP in a way that makes sense, like this Barbie movie, I'm all for it. 
Yeah, and I think that that is that is my key. I don't know if that's going to be Hollywood's key in terms of a, you know empowering a creative person to tell the story that they want to tell that is sort of around this IP and like Trojan horsing interesting ideas in through that. Um, you know whether or not Warner Brothers and Mattel specifically are going to learn that lesson, or if they're going to look at Barbie and say like hey, this performed well, maybe we can have more control over the narrative next time, whatever, um, you know, it, it all remains to be seen. But that that's certainly something that I think a lot of people are thinking about. Um, yeah, for sure. One thing that I wanted to bring up, Ryan, is like the business is so different now than it was when Nolan and Gerwig were first coming up. There was this pathway in place, and I, I, alluded, to, I alluded to it earlier, like there was this template where people could take uh, small steps upward in their careers and embrace more responsibility and slightly higher budgets and tell bigger stories. And it was like climbing stairs. But now it seems like the staircase has been completely obliterated. And if you have ambitions to direct blockbusters in this country anyway, now you start at the bottom. And if your first movie or first couple movies are successful and low budget and whatever, then you're put on this elevator straight into $200 million territory. So the question is, and there's no real way to know this, but I'm just curious what you think about it. Do you think Hollywood will see the success of these movies and invest in seeking out and empowering the next generation of Nolans and Gerwigs? And is there even a practical way to do that anymore? If they do, it'll be by accident. Um, it, like I, I, cause I think that like, I think what you're talking about is it wasn't so much that Hollywood was like immediately like you got to make a blockbuster. Now there just weren't like a lot of mid budget movies out there to make. So it's like, okay, you made a small movie making small movies is incredibly hard. If you want to make something that isn't a small movie, you have to essentially then go make a very big movie. Mm -hmm. Like, so it, it, but I think I'm hoping against hope that like the one thing I've argued that if you made one less, transformers rise of the beast in a given year you could make three to four mid-budget movies and hope one of those hits and i think that would be what i would hope to see studios do because you look at even like something like sony's doing where you have no hard feelings you know it's coming up on 83 million dollars worldwide it's not a huge hit but when you couple their the deal they have with netflix vod that's going to make them some money and you know like and that's even like a worst case scenario right like it didn't like truly pop off so I would mm -hmm. hope that and then that would give you a pathway to take um, I'm trying to think, look at like, OK, let's say Patrick Wilson wasn't like a, a known name, but he made Insidious the Red Door, which popped off. Then you wanted to give him a slightly bigger movie. That would be an avenue to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, so like, you know, so I think that that's what I would hope would happen. And that would provide a pathway for that. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. OK, well, uh, I guess any other box office takeaways that you wanted to mention, um, we have a, a I'm, I've linked to a ton of your uh, written coverage here in the the document in the show notes that people can click and, and read your further thoughts. But any big things that you wanted to, to say here before we move on? Um, I, 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 uh, I the one big thing I will say is that uh, uh, if looking ahead here, which we didn't talk about, we have Disney's Haunted Mansion coming up this upcoming weekend. And I suspect that is going to be kind of a bloodbath. Uh, so, mm. uh, you know, just look for look for kind of the opposite of what happened this past weekend and the upcoming weekend. That's unfortunate. I really like Justin Simeon as a as a storyteller, as a director and as a person. So I, I hate to see that. But I think you're right. Like the you know, it just doesn't seem like there's much buzz on on that movie. But um, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard it, it's a good mixture of like scary stuff and, and uh, comedy, which is kind of what the original 
uh, Disney ride is like. So it sounds like it will be better than the Eddie Murphy movie from 2002 or 2003 or whenever that was. But um, I guess that's kind of a, a low bar to clear. So uh, <laughs> hopefully it won't do uh, disastrously. But um, but yeah, I've, I've got my personal sort of fingers crossed for Haunted Mansion. But uh, yeah, things are not uh, not looking ideal there. But um, okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back to talk about some uh, movie and TV news. All right, Ryan. So we have a bunch of things to to get through. I don't know if we're going to actually get through all of them, but I wanted to, to bring up this quote from Christopher Nolan, who was talking recently about uh, directing a Bond movie. And the internet seems obsessed with this idea of Christopher Nolan directing a Bond movie. What if he did it? You know, whatever. There's just, it seems like every you know few years there's like a flurry of stories about what if Christopher Nolan was the next Bond director and whatever. It's just like this obsession that the inter- internet has. Yeah, there were also rumors that he was being actively spoken to after Danny Boyle walked away from no time to die. Uh, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if those rumors are, are just like um, British tabloid BS, which uh, so much of the James Bond uh, machine in terms of like the gossip and noise around that franchise is just complete trash that comes out of tabloids that have like zero journalistic ethics and integrity. And like, you know, yeah, it could be yeah. like they heard a guy in a bar say it. So they write an article about it, like that level of stuff. Um, so I, I, I've never really known, you know, was that actually real or was that just one of those things of like, because his name has been attached in a series of articles for the past 15 years to bond stuff. Is that just like wishful thinking on somebody's part? Or if that, if he actually really did sit down and talk with the broccolis and, and whatever about that. Um, But I guess just, I know that you're a big bond fan, Ryan, and I am as well. And I just want to know, like, do you want to see a Christopher Nolan directed James Bond movie? Okay, this is a twofold thing, and I'm going to steal a line of thinking from uh, Mr. Phil Noble Jr., who is the editor-in-chief of Fangoria, but also a noted Bond fanatic. Um, here's the problem with the Bond movies that they you have to look going forward. You've got to get younger people interested in the franchise or it will die, period. So, like, you've got to find a way to, like, you've got to find a hook for younger viewers, and I just don't know that a Nolan Bond movie is is going to do that. Um, do I personally, just as someone who, do I want to see one of my very favorite filmmakers make something within one of my very favorite franchises? You absolutely bet. Do I think that's what's best for it? No, I do not. So I, I, it's kind of twofold, but, but, um, yeah, yeah. So I think that you've got to, you got to get like, you got to find it. You just can't try to emulate the Craig movies. Like, I think we sort of saw what a Nolan Bond movie would look like in that snow, snow scene in the third act of Inception. It Mm -hmm. would look cool. But I think you gotta think you gotta go another way with it. Yeah, he's talked so much about how that that scene in particular was like explicitly uh, inspired by his love of the Bond movies, and he he sort of like sneaks some Bond stuff into a lot of his films. If, if you're looking for those connections, you can find it. I, I love Nolan movies, and I think I actually would not want to see him direct a Bond movie just because of that. Like we we've already seen him kind of do that, and I I just want to see like a different perspective on it, and I also want to see what Nolan does outside of the franchise thing. I I love the idea of him, you know, taking this Oppenheimer movie and turning it into like a cultural phenomenon. Like that just seems like there are so few filmmakers who can do that. I want to see him spend all his capital on things that he's just like, um, you know, obsessed with or personally interested in or whatever. And it's not just, it doesn't feel like 
okay, I'll do this thing over here on the side for a little bit, you know, play in somebody else's sandbox or whatever. So um, as much as I think it, it might be cool or whatever, I, I just, I actually actively don't want to see that. So I, I don't know <laughs> if it's actually going to happen. Uh, I suspect, like you said, they'll probably end up going with somebody who can bring a little bit more juice to it in, in a different way. Um, and I just don't, I don't see him getting bogged down in, in doing that for two years or whatever it is. So um, we'll see how that goes. But uh, so uh, I wanted to mention a couple other things here. There's, there's uh, this Aquaman two story that came out, I guess this was last week um, where Aquaman two is actually has undergone a third round of reshoots which is kind of um, un, unparalleled, un, uh, what, I don't, what's the word? I don't know uh, if it's never happened before, but it might be unprecedented. Unprecedented, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, it seems, uh, certainly for a movie of this budget, of this level, like uh, I can't rec- recall in the however many years I've been working in this industry, hearing about a blockbuster movie going back for a third round of reshoots. That, yeah, that just does certainly not, not at least not anything we've heard about. Because like, you always, there's always little pickup shots we never hear about, you know, but, yeah. but like this, this, this is like, like, again, relatively significant reshoots. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah. Yeah. Man, Aquaman and the Last Kingdom, or the Lost Kingdom, excuse me. Um, yeah, th- this one, three rounds of reshoots, that's just a lot. Uh, and then, you know, I think it's just because this perfect storm of like the DC uh, chaos that's been unfolding and like all the, this movie having to serve all these different masters over all the different times that it's been filming. And, and you've got new executives coming in and new creative teams and James Gunn and Peter Safran and like the probably the performance of the flash on like whether or not that is going to be connected to anything and and you know how how far this movie wants to go in terms of like uh, establishing its own identity or wrapping up the snyderverse slash dceu or whatever like there's just uh, a lot of things that this movie has to deal with i guess as the sort of last point on the totem pole for yeah the... so, sort of by accident uh yeah poor, J- poor james wan makes the highest grossing dc movie of all time and then gets stuck with this yeah. um yeah, because we talked a couple of weeks ago, I think, about like you asked me, you know, is there any chance Aquaman comes over to the new DCU, blah, blah. And I told you at the time, I just don't think so because of all the baggage. And mm-hmm. this report sort of speaks to my like, because I also think James Wan, I said this, this is me talking. This is, I don't think James Wan is ever making a movie for Warner Brothers again. Uh, I imagine he has had a very bad time making this movie. And I think he is just going to go make his deal with Universal Pictures and Blumhouse and he's going to go over there and he is, I just don't think he's ever working for Warner Brothers again. Yeah, just because of this, because of all the chaos that's happened on the set of this movie. Yeah, but I mean, you this movie finished filming well over a year ago, right? Like principal, principal photography was done well over a year ago. If yeah, I'm not I mistaken. think so. You know, and like the guys had, to, I mean, all James Wan has done is make successful movies. All he's done is make Warner Brothers money. Like, so it's like, it just seems like, I got to imagine he feels a little like dragged through the mud here. Like he he still speaks very positively about it, but I don't know. I I can't imagine a filmmaker of his caliber is happy about this. Yeah. And so, you know, this movie has been moved a bunch of times and I think it's currently technically still on the calendar for December of this year. But a new report from Variety, I think this actually was came out last week as well, or maybe this was earlier this week. Anyway, in the past few days, um, Variety reported that Warner Brothers Film Group is strongly considering moving films like Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, uh, the musical version of The Color Purple, and Dune Part 2 
into next year, 2024, um, due to the strikes and the idea that the actors won't be available to promote those films, um, especially you've got something like Dune 2 with uh, Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya and, and Austin Butler and these young, exciting, you know, Hollywood up and coming Hollywood stars. Um, the idea that like those uh, actors wouldn't be available to to promote that movie. Um, I guess you could make the case that like it's a, you you could maybe say that Denis Villeneuve, the director, is a brand name. Uh, you know, uh, I guess on his own to some degree. I mean, he's certainly not uh, on the level of name recognition like you're talking about. Where like I don't think my parents know who Denis Villeneuve is. Um, but uh, I, I don't know that you know this has not been. 100% confirmed or anything like that, but this is just the latest in the aftermath, the, the consequences of the studios not agreeing to the writers and actors' uh, uh, demands, or even, we should say, even agreeing to like come to the table in good faith and, and try to negotiate. They're still being just like completely intransigent uh, about in terms of like uh, yeah. negotiating with these folks. So um, yeah, th- this is the type of uh, after effect that like the the consumer on the on the you know the mom and pop movie watcher or whatever are going to actually start to feel the effects of of this stuff um, of the studio's decisions to or lack of decisions uh, in in you know th- this is what the consequences look like basically is is big big movies that could be and should be coming out in the fall and winter actually getting booted further on down the calendar. So yeah, and and it actually only just occurred to me that man, I can't believe I didn't think about this before, but the idea that like, okay, so because productions have stopped on a lot of movies that are supposed to be released next year, those probably are going to have to get bumped and moved. Like, so I would, there, there's actually probably some arguable incentive for like Warner Brothers and other studios to delay a few movies to next year. So you don't just have a completely empty calendar next year. So I could actually see that. And, and you could also make the argument that like, cause there's no big DC movie in theaters next year. And there's been three this year that if you moved Aquaman to next year, maybe even early next summer, like you might have a better shot. So I, I could sort of see that. Yeah, it's, um, that's, it's fairly devious. Uh, but, but, you know, from a, a I guess a purely numbers based uh, decision. Yeah. You can, you can certainly see where that could come into play. Um, I guess let's, let's talk about one more story and then wrap things up today. So you wrote this article about Netflix getting rid of the cheapest ad free subscription in the U S and UK. Uh, I wonder if you could just sort of set the scene for me. Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah. So basically Netflix had an earnings call this week and, uh, and um, you know, kind of wanted to update some things and, uh, one of the things that came out right before the earnings call is that what Netflix had is their basic plan, which was the nine ninety nine a month plan in the U.S., uh, is no longer available for uh, new or returning subscribers. So basically, you either are left with the standard with ads plan, which is six ninety nine a month, or the standard plan, which is fifteen forty nine a month. And in essence, uh, both of those other plans make more money for Netflix per subscriber. So they they are because at this point, we're starting to see where Netflix is really starting to come up against a ceiling with subscribers, particularly in North America. So they've got to start making the most of the subscribers they do have and uh, or the ones that they are going to get. Uh, so uh, that's pretty much what it is. It's that simple. They're there. They're, it's a way to uh, the, the ads plan is generating more revenue for them. Uh, it also accounted for a fair amount of subscriber growth in this last quarter. So you know, they're just going to lean into that. And, uh, but interestingly enough, Netflix still had a stock drop after the, after the, 
earnings call, even though they added subscribers and stuff. It's just because Wall Street is looking at the the streaming business in a lot of ways and being like, you know, they're not they're not looking at it as favorably as they did. So um, Netflix has a tough road ahead, and this is part of them trying to navigate that tough road. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. It's just, you know, it's one of those things where like all of these, this confluence of events of, of the strikes and Netflix being, you know, painted as like the, uh, and again, I don't know, I'm not inside the room, so I don't know, uh, how true this is, but certainly one of the prevailing narratives out there has been like Netflix is one of the biggest holdouts in terms of the AMPTP, uh, the, the conglomeration of studios and, and producers and whatever, um, because they have, th- their pipeline is fuller. Uh, they have more of a backlog of stuff that they can slowly roll out. So they're conceivably or potentially better uh, positioned than a lot of these other, um, I guess, legacy media companies in terms of the strike and being able to sort of outlast the rest of its competition and whatever. And so the idea that like Netflix is doing all of this and making this move right now, um, you know, amid these strikes, it just all kind of comes together in this way that that really leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Um, and I don't, I don't know if there's like a good way that you can look at this, um, especially for for people who have that subscription and now are just basically being like forced to uh, choose something else that they <laughs> that they well, didn't they're not. want. So the people, sorry, I should mention the people that already have the standard plan are allowed to keep it. Oh, okay. All right. Well, but, that, that's a silver lining, I suppose. Yeah, but but it's so it's for new and returning subscribers. But again, it it I, I'm not saying for sure, but eventually Netflix could just phase that plan out entirely. But for now, at least you know, okay. the, the people who have it are allowed. Sorry, I should have mentioned that before. That was on. No, no, no. That's fine. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's not quite as uh, I guess as as immediately dire as I uh, as I thought. But still, I mean, the, the the point stands. It's just kind of a. This whole thing is a bummer, Ryan, is what I'm saying, man. It's just like, you know, it's I not really... great. It's not great. The fact <laughs> yeah. that the entire industry pivoted to streaming and now it's like clear that those walls are, you know, it's it's just not the it's not the pure and only future that everyone thought it was. Um, yeah, it, it's I don't know. It's rough. But uh, yeah. Yep. Rough stuff. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it on on that bright and cheery note. uh, I think that's (laughs) going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The SlashFilm show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailback topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com do send in your mailbag topics like if you have anything any questions you want to know any like uh i don't know any, anything at all um our, our mailbox has been fairly empty over the past couple weeks so uh if you have any questions now's the time to send them in and maybe we'll do like a full mailbag episode i would love to do that if we have enough stuff uh, enough responses come in so once again, that is bpearson at slashfilm.com. Um, make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you later this week.